You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all here today. Um, as uh, Bryce mentioned in his prayer, I'm sure uh, most of you have heard about my unfortunate accident just a little over a week ago, uh, which I just I randomly fainted and uh, hit my head a couple times on the way down, and um, which is why I have this pretty sweet scar on my forehead. Um, anyways, I just want to say I appreciate your, your prayers and uh, your texts and everything like that, and uh, I've mostly recovered from any concussion symptoms. The scar is healing up pretty nicely, so... I'm uh, feeling pretty normal today, which is nice. Uh, so I just, yeah, I just want to say I appreciate your your prayers, and um, I'm all good now. Um, anyways, forgetting that, um, it's hard to believe, but it's already been three months uh, since we've started this sermon series through Daniel, which we've titled Exiles. It's already been three months, and we're only in chapter three. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're going to be here. We're going to be in Daniel for years to come. No, we're no, we're not going to spend that much time. But um, we'll, we'll go a little quicker now, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, but um, but uh, maybe because it's because it's I, I because I got a bump on my head last week and I can't remember anything now, or or simply because it's been three months mixed in with a bunch of holidays and and whatnot. Um, but regardless. I, I felt like it was a good time today, and, and because we have our children with us today as well, I felt like it was a good time for all of us to get a refresher, a refresher of, of what we've learned and, and, and what the book of Daniel is all about and what we've been talking about uh, being Christian exiles in this world. And, and it's good to be reminded, and, and if I can be honest, sometimes I even forget what I've preached about <laughs> until I, like, go over my notes again and be like, oh, yeah, that's what I said. Like, so I, I can't even imagine how much you guys remember. And so it's, it's good to, to uh, be reminded of what we've learned and what we've gone through. And so today is going to be pretty much like a mid-season review, like just pretend you're in high school and, and your, your midterms are coming up and the teacher's re- reviewing what you've learned, right? So that's what we're going to be doing today. And, and we'll also get introduced to some new concepts uh, which we'll be discussing and learning about in the coming weeks as we, we can consider, uh, continue to consider what it means and what it looks like to live as exiles for the kingdom of God in this world. Um, but again, I'm not going to lie when, when I say um, part of my week was a little rough, right? Um, I had recovering from mild concussion symptoms. I, I wasn't able to read very long, <laughs> and my brain actually literally hurt hurt, like actually hurt. Um, and so, you know how when, when you're in school, I'm, I'm using a lot of school references today. Uh, when I was in school, when I was a kid and the teacher was having a bad day or the teacher wasn't feeling very well or wasn't feeling very motivated, then, then all of a sudden the, you know, the, the TV would roll into the room, right? And, and they'd show you a movie. And so, <laughs> um, at least when I was a kid, they had to roll a TV, and now they just have these fancy projectors, I guess. Um, kids these days don't even know, you know, uh, how amazing it was to see that TV roll in. Uh, <laughs> that, that was the best day. Uh, anyways, that's what we're going to do for a little bit this morning. N- not the whole time, just for, for uh, a couple of minutes. We're going to watch a video about Daniel. 
the book of Daniel. And then I'm going to talk about a few things after that as well. And so uh, we're going to be all over the place this morning, which is fine. Um, so what we're going to do is watch a video uh, by the Bible Project. Um, and this video summarizes the book of Daniel pretty well. Uh, we actually have the poster back there and also up on the mezzanine as well. That's, that's where that poster's from. And um, anyways, the, in, in the video, they present a great overview of the book, its purposes, its themes, and, and they also present some unique perspectives as well. So it's, it's good to hear um, other perspectives besides mine or, or, or Blair's, right? So we're going to watch that now, and then I'm going to... And then I have a bunch of stuff to say after that. So, Cheryl, if you want to throw up the video, that would be amazing. The Book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David. Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace. But God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. 
He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a god, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts. And like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the son of man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that. And that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now, by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. 
We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now, the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that, in a sense, they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John, the visionary who wrote the Revelation, could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Right on. <laughs> so that's kind of an overview of the book of Daniel. And um, now I'm going to just talk about an overview of what we've kind of been learning as we've been going through Daniel. So, um, and, and we've, we've been discussing, right, as I said before, we've been discussing what it means and what it looks like to live as exiles. Um, Obviously, when we're talking about Daniel and his friends, their life as Jewish exiles in Babylon is in, in many ways uh, different than our lives as Christian exiles in the world, right? Not only contextually, but also historically, since they, they lived in a time awaiting for the Messiah and were longing to return home to an earthly kingdom, Jerusalem. And, 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 and we live in a time in which the Messiah has come. And we're longing for that eternal kingdom, the new Jerusalem. And so for, even from that perspective, it's a little different, but also a little bit the same, right? Because even as the video noted, and as we've learned previously as well, there, there are many similarities and archetypes that we can draw from as Christians. E even Jesus and the, and the writers of the New Testament often use the, the exil this exilic imagery and even direct quotations from the book of Daniel to teach us as Christians as followers of Christ, how we should live and how we should work out our faith in, in a place that isn't our eternal home. Uh, Tim Chester and, and Steve Timmis, they write, Christians are like immigrants, foreigners, temporary residents, refugees. We do not belong. We do not have the rights of citizens. We are outsiders. We are living on the edge of the culture. 
And in the, in the same way, we're reminded in Scripture over and over again that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we're, we're actually strangers and exiles in this world. This world is in our home, and, and that in Christ, we're no longer following the sinful course of this world. But we've been saved by grace through faith so that God can work out his good and perfect will through us as we live in this world. So we're here for a purpose. We're here for a purpose so that we can be remnants and, and lights of God's glory and Christ's salvation in this broken world until he comes again. So, so for us, the book of Daniel has been, been a great teacher in this, in not only how to survive as exiles, but, but how to bring godly influence into this place in which we find ourselves, how, how to live with purpose and faithful perseverance, proclaiming the glory of God and the gospel of Christ. So, so on that end, as we've been studying through Daniel, this, this is where we get the overview of what we've already learned. Right? We've already learned that as exiles, number one, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is our current and future hope that's promised throughout Daniel. That, that all empires and, and, and things of this earth will crumble, but that his kingdom will remain. And therefore, as we live out our Christian lives in this world, he needs to be our focus. He needs to be our life. He is our strength and our comfort and our salvation and our eternity. He is what compels us to, to stand firm in faith and proclaim the gospel to the world. And, and we've learned as well that it's actually in the midst of exile that we find hope and promise of spiritual renewal. I think we, we talked about this as how, how Christians, we, we look out into the world and, and we can start um, becoming fearful or, or, or worried seeing the, what's happening in, in our culture and, and, and the secularization of, of Western civilization. And, and we can start becoming worried, but, but we find that it's actually in the midst of exile where we find that hope and promise of spiritual renewal that, that God's going to move. And, and, and um, in that vein, we've learned that God has not abandoned us in our exile. He's not abandoned us in our exile, but is sovereign over it. He's placed us in this moment as exiles to draw us closer to him, to discipline us, to show us his uh, love, to show his love and mercy through us, and to invite us to partner with him in the midst of it. And therefore, we've actually been given an opportunity, right, to, to be a remnant and, and a shining beacon of God's hope and truth in the darkness, to be a non-anxious presence of clarity and peace and truth in the midst of the chaos, like Daniel was in the courts of Babylon. And we've also learned that, that as exiles, in order to persevere and remain effective in our calling to be Jesus' salt and light on the earth, it's important that, that we maintain our Christian identity. Right? In, in, in the midst of a Babylonian-type culture that seeks to assimilate, to, to rename us, to distract us, to pull us away from, from who we are. Just as Daniel refused to defile himself by the food of Babylon, we must also seek to, to remain obedient and holy and set apart for God and the power of his spirit by his grace. And, and therefore, we've learned, like Daniel as well, the importance of humbling ourselves daily before God. Both, both in private and with other believers, with, with repentance and, and heartfelt hunger in order to contend for his presence and his will. And that it's only through humility that God can work through us and exalt us with Christ, with Christ who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross and then was subsequently lifted up and seated at the right hand of God. 
So we have to have that mind among ourselves. On a practical level, we also learn that like Daniel, in order to remain faithful, in order to remain focused on God and, and on purpose as exiles, we need to desire and establish patterns of discipline and renewal in our lives. We need to have consistent habits of, of prayer, of fasting, of reading the word, of worship, and of meeting with one another. And we've also learned that as exiles living in a place that's not our home, we're actually meant to honor and respect the rulers and authorities where we live and to love our neighbors, right? To seek the prosperity of the land that we find ourselves in, to establish roots, to flourish, and to live peaceably and sacrificially and generously, ultimately to, to love one another and therefore show the world the love of God. And that's the role of the exile. And, and, and all this is summed up for us nicely in First Peter 2. I'm just going to read a couple of verses of that, 9 to 12. First Peter 2, 9 to 12, which is actually on our exile's banner as well. And I've read this before, but it sums everything up nicely. It says, but you are a chosen race. You Christians, followers of Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, we, we, are, we are a people in the midst of the rest of the world, right? Set apart for God as, as remnants to proclaim the excellencies of him. That's why we're here. And verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we see all that summed up by, by Peter, which is very helpful. Um, but... Uh, but in regards to keeping our conduct honorable, we are to keep our conduct honorable so that the world would see our love and, and see our good deeds and glorify God and all that. But, but last week, as Pastor Blair reintroduced us to the story of, of King Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's refusal to bow down to it, right? They're saying we worship God alone. We refuse to bow down to this, this false idol, this, this statue that represents Babylon's pride, right? Um, when he reintroduced us to that, we learned as well that as exiles, no matter how much we try to live peaceably and honorably, no matter how many good deeds we do, there will be moments where we'll have to resist. Right? There will be moments where we'll have to resist. And truth be told, as, as, as Christians and, and exiles in this, in this secular world, we're, we're, we're always walking that tightrope. Right? Feeling that tension of living in the world, but not of it. And if I can be honest, if you're not feeling that tension, then you're probably bowing down to that culture already. Which is always the temptation, right? In our desire to be honorable as Christians and, and loving our neighbor and even relevant in our outreach to the world, we're often tempted to then compromise our own beliefs Maybe to avoid awkwardness or, or suffering or sounding offensive or whatever, right? That's always the temptation. 
But as Jesus basically says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer useful. And he also says we can't serve two masters. So sometimes, like in this story in particular, the golden statue, this, this tension of living in the world but not of it comes to a head. And it's in these moments where we actually reveal the true state of our heart and, and the foundation of our faith as we're forced to choose to place our, our trust and hope in God or in idols. God or the culture. God or worldly wealth. God or worldly respect and achievement. Spirit or flesh. And again, as Pastor Blair mentioned last week, as, as Christians, we, we refuse to bow down to idols because it just doesn't make any sense to us anymore. At least it shouldn't. We found that Jesus is, is the only perfect image of the invisible God. He's, he's the one and only Savior. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords who loves us with an unrelenting and perfect love, the bread of life who satisfies and sustains our lives. And so, so it makes no sense to bow down to or give allegiance to anything or anyone else but him alone. In the same vein, this is why God commands us to have no other gods or idols before him. He's jealous for us. God is jealous for us, for you. And, and not because he's, he's worried that we'll find hope and, and, and satisfaction in something other than him, but precisely because we won't find hope or satisfaction in anything but him. The golden statue of, of King Nebuchadnezzar probably looks spectacular. It represented the, the, the kingdom, the, the empire that was reigning over all of Mesopotamia. But yet, it was still powerless and useless to help or comfort. It's powerless to save, just like the pride of man which inspired its form. Psalm 115, 1-8 says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your faithful love, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. Their idols are, are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They, they cannot make a sound with their throats. And those who make them are just like them and are all who trust in them. And we become like what we worship. To bow down to a dead idol or, or a false ideology leads to death. To bow down to the living God and lean on his truth leads to life. And while, you know, of course, we'll, never be forced to, we'll probably never be forced to bow down to a golden statue in our time, right? But we are constantly tempted and pressured to bow down to the belief systems, the ideologies, and the culture of the world we live in. Um, as uh, Mark Sayers writes, during the Babylonian exile, the prophets warned the people of God not to succumb to the worship of idols, to bend their knee to foreign gods. The injunction against idol worship is still there in the New Testament. However, on the other side of the cross, it is not just idols, but heresies, deceitful philosophies, false teachers that the believer must be wary of. 
And now freed from the elemental forces and experiencing the liberation of the gospel, Paul warns the believers in Galatia to not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. In other words, as, as, as exiles, we, we face this battle between choosing to walk in the spirit or the flesh daily. We're constantly battling whether we're going to bow down to God or to something else. It's a continuous decision to give our allegiance and worship to God alone, knowing he's the only one worthy of it. And as we continue more into the story of the fiery furnace uh, next week, we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more. But I want to highlight, lastly, this morning, that is the, the video alluded to as well, that the book of Daniel is, is, is about hope, right? It's often pointing us towards what's to come and reminding us that there's more than just right now. There's more than just the present. That God's story and plan of redemption calls us to also look forward. Again, ultimately, we're looking forward to the hope of Christ's return and the fullness of the coming kingdom where we're rescued from this exile. But this also means that until that day, whether or not we see that day in our lifetime or not, we're called to be that faithful remnant and to prepare the way for the next generation of believers as well. This is about the next generation of believers as well. In other words, it's important that we remain resilient. It's important that we make disciples, that we stand firm in faith, that we proclaim and preserve the truth and teachings of Christ and his word, that not just for our own lives, not just for our own sake, but also for the sake of the next generation, for our kids here in this room today. And for their kids, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so that they'll walk in the way of the Lord. Psalm 78, 5 to 8, reflects this importance when it says, he, The Lord established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know. They were to rise and tell their children, so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep his commands. Then they would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So for the sake of the next generation, we can't afford to meander or be lazy or be swept away by the ideologies of our culture. For, the sake, for their sake, we can't afford to take our faith and our role. To, we can't afford to not take our faith and our role as exiles seriously. I've been reading through First uh, Chronicles over the last couple weeks. In First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, they give us a, a historical account of the kings of Israel and Judah over the years along with some specific and, and notable moments of each of their reigns. So I've been reading through that, which has been really interesting. And, and at one point, King David desires to honor God for what, for what God's done in his life. And so he proclaims to God that, that because, because David's living in this nice house and, and, and there's still like a tent set up, a tabernacle set up for God, he, he proclaims to God, he says, God, I, I live in this nice house, so I'm going to build you a nice house. I'm going to build you a temple where, where your presence can dwell and the people can come and worship you. And this seems like a pretty good idea, pretty, pretty honorable, right? It's something good for David to desire and commit to. 
But then God, through the prophet Nathan, basically says to David, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I didn't, God says to him, I didn't ask you to do that. And, uh, and then he says to David and gives him an even better promise. He's like flips it around and he says, David, just as I've established you and been with you this whole time, I'll build you a house. And then I'll establish your offspring in that house and in my kingdom forever. And then he will build me a temple. In other words, so while David desired what was good, it wasn't part of God's perfect plan or timing for him to do that. Instead, it would actually be David's offspring, King Solomon, who would see its fruition. And of course, this is also a prophecy that points later to Jesus, an offspring of David, who would make us into living temples. Um, but that's a part of the story right now. Um, <laughs> it is, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, anyways, so, so David gets this promise from God that King Solomon's going to build a temple. Um, but what I found interesting is that, you know, you know, if someone tells you, like, that's not for you to do, that's going to be for someone else later on, we'd probably be like, all right, move on to something else, right? But what I found interesting was that David didn't just sit on that promise and do nothing. Instead, even though he knew he'd never see it in his lifetime, he still did as much as he could do to set his son up for success in this. So, so he prepared the land for the temple. He organized the workers who would build it. He organized the Levites who would be the priests. And he prepared the musicians. He provided all the supplies needed for the temple. Everything from iron for nails and clamps and large quantities of bronze and cedars for, for the construction. As it says in First Chronicles 22.5, For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. And the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. He made preparation for it, even though he would never see it. And as we look around the room this morning and, and we see all the, the amazing kids here today, whether they're yours or not, Let's ask ourselves, what are we willing to commit to and endure and persevere through and sacrifice in our lives in order to make sure that they can experience and understand and walk in the purpose that God has for them and for their children and so on? Even if we don't get to see the end result, even if we don't get to see that revival which we long for, is it still not our calling to, to, to plant the seeds of the kingdom so that they can reap the harvest? Something, something that always strikes me is that Daniel and his friends never got to go back home to Jerusalem. They, they never got to experience the promise that God would reestablish his people and rebuild the temple after their exile. They never got to see that. In fact, they lived and died as exiles in Babylon, even though they were totally faithful, totally sold out for God the whole time. They lived and died as exiles in Babylon. But yet it was still their faithfulness 
that not only preserved the law of God amongst their people, but also helped prepare the way for those who would eventually get to go home. Their faithfulness in exile prepared the way for the next generation to experience that renewal of God. And in the same way, we need to be ready and committed to this kind of attitude as well. To, to, be, to be willing and ready to prepare the way, or rather be an example of, and point the next generation to the one who is the way, to Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. This is, this is for those that come after us. So let's remember then as, that as we humbly contend for God to move, as we pursue the unity of the Spirit, as we allow Christ to, to build us into the church, as we remain steadfast in our faith and our obedience, as we commit ourselves to prayer and, and to the word and to spiritual growth and, and to making disciples, as we live as exiles, it's not just for our own sake. We're also preparing the way for the next generation to walk into the promises of God and to step into the redeeming life that God has planned for them in Christ as well. And on that note, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. The Alpha and Omega, the creator of heaven and earth. Lord, I thank you that you desire to dwell with us, that you desire to, to partner with us. And that you sent Jesus Christ to, to make a way for that to happen. Heavenly Father, even as we, as we go through your word, as we go through Daniel in the, in the coming weeks and, and months, that you would, continually, you, can, you would continue to, to teach us what it means, what it looks like to live as exiles. Why you've placed us here in this moment, in this age and that you would, you would use us, Lord. I pray that you would humble us so that you can use us to be your hands and feet, to proclaim your name, to preserve your truth. And Lord, I pray for the children here this morning. I pray your blessing would be upon them, Lord, that you would raise them up in the way that they should go. And I pray that you would place it on our hearts to, to, to commit to surrendering our lives to you, not, not just for our own sake, Lord, but for theirs. That we would understand that this isn't just about us. This is about your plan of redemption. This is about your kingdom come. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for each person here this morning that, that you would write your word on their hearts, that, that you would continually continue to change us and mold us more and more into your image, into your likeness, that you would make us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your grace, even more effective as ambassadors of your kingdom in this world, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.